0: Jai, Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Jura Dhamma Ki Jai, Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai, Natpuri Dhamma Jamuna Devi Ki Bhakti Devi Ki Tulsi Maharani Samaveta Bhaktarinda Ki Jai, all glories to the assembled devotees. Amen. All glories to the assembled devotees. Amen. All glories to the assembled devotees. Amen. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada, Himal, Ong, Rishnu Kudaya, Krishna Prasad, Ujjalak, Srimayate Bhakti, Mirajya Swami, Niti Namine, Namaste, Sarasvati Devi, Gloravati Vajran, Nivastasis, Nivati Bhaskajade, Saturna. Vandeham sri Guru Sri Uta Pada Kamalam Guru Vaisna Bhavischa Shri Rupam Sagvajatam Sahagana Raganatham Bhitamstam Sajeeva Sadvaitam Sarvudutam Padutinam Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam radha krishna Pinam Sahagana Ravita Shri Vishakam Bhitamstam Vanchi Kalpa Sri Bhischa Kipasim Yevichaptitinam Bhavanaya Vaisri Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya vasudevaya. vasudevaya. February 12th, 2017 in Sydney, Australia, a reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Kanto 9, Chapter 15, Parashuram, the Lord's Warrior Incarnation, reading from 32 through 40, and text 40 is on the board. Just going to read through the translations. By manipulating his axe and arrows, Lord Parashuram cut to pieces the shields, flags, bows, and bodies of Kartavirya Arjuna's soldiers who fell on the battlefield, muddying the ground with their blood. Seeing these reverses, Kartavirya Arjuna infuriated, rushed to the battlefield. I had a whole discussion yesterday, which we're not going to repeat today, about how this is, it's rasa. This is not an ordinary uh, battle. One of the devotees told me yesterday after the class, this whole story is like a young boy's dream of adventures. Then Kartavirya Arjuna, with his 1,000 arms, simultaneously fix arrows on 500 bows to kill Lord Parasaram. But Lord Parasaram, the best of fighters, released enough arrows with only one bow to cut to pieces immediately all the arrows and bows in the hands of Kartavir Arjuna. We should try to picture this, make our own little movie in our mind of this. That's Someday, when the whole world is full of Lord Chaitanya's movement, this will be the entertainment, right? There'll be dramas and movies and stuff all about these instead of fictional things. When his arrows were cut to pieces, Kartavir Arjuna uprooted many trees and hills with his own hands. He uprooted hills. And again rushed strongly towards Lord Parasaram to kill him. Imagine a battlefield where people are walking around, running around, carrying hills. And trees I can kind of picture you know but kills of course he has a thousand arms that's a little hard to picture it also but Parasram then used his axe with great force to cut off Kartavirya Arjuna's arms just as one might lop off the hoods of a serpent thereafter Parasram cut off like a mountain peak the head of Kartavirya Arjuna who had already lost his arms and Kartavirya Arjuna's ten thousand sons this guy's really into big numbers isn't he <laughs> Thousand arms, 10,000 children. <laughs> That's the whole city. When Karjaviri Arjuna's 10,000 sons saw their father killed, they all fled in fear. Then Parasuram, having killed the enemy, released the Kamadenu, which had undergone great suffering. That's a mystic cow. And brought it back with its calf to his residence where he gave it to his father, Jamadagni. Parasaram described to his father and brothers his activities, in killing Kartavir Arjuna, upon hearing of these deeds, Jamadagni spoke to his son as follows. "O oh great hero, my dear son Parasaram, you have unnecessarily killed the king, who is supposed to be the embodiment of all the demigods, thus you have committed a sin. So this is very interesting because the king, Kartavir Arjuna, had stolen Jamadagni's Kamadenu. And yet Jamadagni is saying, no, no, you don't kill the ruler. My dear son, we are all Brahmanas and have become worship rule for the people in general because of our quality of forgiveness. It is because of this quality that Lord Brahma, the supreme spiritual master of this universe, has achieved his post. Psalm text 40. Shamaya rochate Lakshmiar. <laughs> Shamaya rami sori, prabha, rami sori, prabha, rami sori prabha, Shaminam śāminam tusyate hari tusyate hari tusyate-hārī-śvārā Simply by forgiving, rochate becomes pleasing. <coughs> Lakshmi, the goddess of fortune. Goddess of fortune. Rami, in connection, in connection with Brahminical qualifications. Sori, Sori. The, sun the sun god. Yata, Yata. as. Prabha, the, the sunshine. Shaminam, Shaminam. unto the Brahmanas who are so forgiving. So, so forgiving. Ashu, very, very soon. Bhagavan. The Supreme Personality of Godhead Godhead. Tushite, Tushite. Tushite. Becomes Pleased pleased. Harihi The Lord Lord. Ishvara The Supreme Supreme Controller So many times devotees ask How do we know what is pleasing to Krishna? How do I know whether what I'm doing is pleasing to Krishna? This is a very common question and we were talking about in uh, Shiksha giving up the false identity of I am a very good person or I am a rebel and instead having the mood that I am just trying to please Krishna I am just trying to make Krishna smile So how do we please Krishna? Well, this is given here Tushyate Hari Ishvara Bhagavan Tushyate Hari Ishvara If you want to give Tushya if you want to give satisfaction to the Supreme Lord then you become shaminam shaminam here is the people who are forgiving people who are forgiving. we have shamaya and shaminam by the way uh, shamaya also means peaceful it's both forgiving and peaceful translation in purport by Śiva the duty of a brahmana is to culture the quality of forgiveness which is illuminating like the sun The Supreme Personality of God at Hari is pleased with those who are forgiving. So Prabhupada in this purport is going to be discussing forgiveness in terms of Varnashram. PURPORT Different personalities become beautiful by possessing different qualities. Tanaki Pandit says that the cuckoo bird, although very black, is beautiful because of its sweet voice. Similarly, a woman becomes beautiful by her chastity and faithfulness to her husband, and an ugly person becomes beautiful when he becomes a learned scholar. In the same way, brahmanas, kshatriyas, vaishas and shudras become beautiful by their qualities. Brahmanas are beautiful when they are forgiving, kshatriyas when they are heroic and never retreat from fighting, vaishas when they enrich cultural activities and protect cows, and shudras when they are faithful in the discharge of duties pleasing to their masters. Thus everyone becomes beautiful by his special qualities and the special quality of the brahmanas as described here is forgiveness. Shamaya rochate lakshmi brahmi shori ita prabha. Shaminam ashu hari ishvara. The duty of a brahmana is to culture the quality of forgiveness, which is illuminating like the sun. The Supreme Personality of God in Hari is pleased with those who are forgiving. So we're looking at three different attributes here. One is beauty which Srila Prabhupada is definitely relating to this illuminating like the sun. All of us want to be beautiful, right? Anybody here want to be ugly? Different people have different conceptions of what is beauty, of course, Uh, different ideas of what is is beautiful. But everyone wants to be attractive. And illuminating like the sun indicates not only great beauty, uh, but also knowledge and clarity and understanding. You're illuminated like the sun this terminology is used for enlightenment and clarity and this is something we all also want yes everybody wants clarity so as i travel people often come to me for advice about particulars in their life should i marry or not should i marry this person should i have children should i have more children should i divorce my spouse <laughs> you know should i get a job what job should i get where should i live should I live in the temple? Show I live outside? People come to me frequently with a whole list of, of these kind of things. One person even was asking me whether she should get a red Merdanga or a blue Merdanga. Anyway, <laughs> people are asking all the time, you know, what, what should I do? What should I do? So, clarity. Krishna says that if one is in Sattvagun, one has clarity. One can tell what is binding, what is liberated, what is to be done and what is not to be done. He compares this to the illumination of the sun. And the third thing here is mentioned is the pleasure of the Lord, which is the ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is not to be attractive, and our ultimate goal is not even to have full clarity and illumination of our consciousness, but our ultimate goal is simply to make Krishna smile, to make Krishna happy. Just like in this world we become happy when someone we love is happy. This is natural. It's a natural thing. If you have somebody that you care about, whether they're a friend, a parent, a spouse, a, a child, whatever, a co-worker, when, they're, when when you care about that person, their happiness is happiness. People even feel this way about their animals. If their animal is happy, then they feel happy. Yes? So how much more should we feel this about Krishna, who's the supreme self, who's the sum total of everything. That is really the source of our happiness. So here Srivaprabhu is mentioning that people have their beauty looking just at the quality of beauty in different ways according to who they are that beauty is not the same for everyone and this is the concept of personalism that what makes each of us successful is being expert in our particular way even if you can say there's an absolute standard, still that standard is achieved in a very personal way, it's just this morning, in nectar Devotion, Prabhupada was talking about how each devotee in their perfected state has an eternal way they want to satisfy the Lord. A very specific way. Prabhupada was giving the example that some living entities want to take care of Krishna's cows for him. Krishna, can I help take care of your cows? Somebody else wants to decorate the groves of Rindavan for Krishna. Somebody else wants to be like a mother or father to Krishna. There, there's an infinite number of ways in which the devotee wants to please Krishna in our original form. That's really the measure of our personality. And that concept that we are pleasing in an individual way operates here as well. So even though our present identity is a false and temporary one, this particular body, this particular psychology, still there's a way of using it that will please Krishna which is different than how somebody else will please Krishna. And this point is very, very important. The way that I'm going to please Krishna and the way you're going to please Krishna are not going to be exactly the same. So Prabhupada is speaking in, in even big generalities. He's giving us uh, six categories. But please understand that really it's so individual. His first category he gives is that of women. The women are beautiful when they're faithful, when they're chaste to their husband, when they're not promiscuous. So I know we had an interesting experience in New York. We lived in a flat a couple blocks from the temple on 55th Street. We lived on 57th Street. And there was a laundromat downstairs. I, I didn't go there because I had a little machine in my apartment that I could just hook up to my sink. It didn't need to be installed. And every once in a while, I would notice that there were young women going down to the basement. They'd get in on the first floor, and they'd go directly down to the basement. And I I didn't think much of it. But one day, after we'd lived there for many months, when the elevator door and the lift door opened in the basement, I noticed that there was not only a laundromat there. I noticed that at the end of the corridor, there was a door, and the door opened, and you could see that there was some kind of a bar, there was some kind of a pub. And all of a sudden, I could understand, oh, there's a brothel in the basement of this apartment building. And these women coming into the lift and never going to the upstairs floor, they're working there. And once I noticed, once I became aware of that, all of a sudden, I noticed these women who were coming into the, I just hadn't really paid much attention to them before, that they were coming into the apartment and going downstairs. And I started noticing that although they dressed themselves to be attractive, obviously, uh, they were actually quite ugly. And what was ugly about them was their mannerism and their speech. They were very crude and they were very hardened. I would imagine that to have that as your career, you would have to have a very hard heart because naturally that kind of activity between people binds you, It is chemically actually, uh, when people engage in sexual behavior, they chemically get bound to each other. They're all different chemicals released that give you attachment to the other and soften your heart towards the other person. But if you're doing that just for money, if you're doing that as a job, then you have to artificially create something to keep yourself from getting attached to these people. And so these ladies, they looked attractive in a, in a technical way, but as soon as they behaved and talked, it was, it was actually repulsive. You know, you're just like, whoa... They're really ugly. And we've all experienced that somebody who's not physically attractive, when they have some nice quality, we see them as attractive, yes? Vice versa. I mean, I've met people that at first glance I saw them and said, wow, this person could be on magazine covers. And after you know them for a while, you're thinking, why did I ever think this person was attractive? And it works the other way. You meet somebody, you think, oh, this unfortunate person. You know, no matter how much they work with their hair and their clothes, they're really, really unattractive. And after you get to know them, you see that they're attractive. He's saying a scholar becomes attractive. An ugly person becomes attracted if they're learned. And I also had an experience of this in our guru We used to teach a class called the Vedas in modern science where we were looking at the difference between the Bhagavatam and what's taught in modern science and how we could adjust it and we used to use materials not only from his kind of devotees but from a wide range of sources. So there was one Christian preacher about, against evolution and we used his video. Uh, he's Australian, actually. And the, the gentleman was physically very, very ugly. And he was actually ugly. But he was such a scholar and he had such affection for the Lord. He would speak so nicely. But after 10 minutes of watching the video, you forgot that he was ugly. And, and, you know, I ended up showing it over the years to different classes. And again, after a while, I had to think, how is it that I thought he was ugly? <laughs> you know? Physically, of course, his features didn't change. And here we have brahmanas are, truth, are beautiful when they're forgiving, and we're going to discuss forgiveness in, in some depth. is when they're heroic and never retreat from the battlefield. So this is what we expect of our political leaders, Our modern political leaders stay in their presidential palaces and simply order other people to fight. When there's danger, they go in their bunkers. They never expose themselves to any danger. They tax the citizens, they live in luxury. They send out other people to fight, and they themselves live in safety. They're not affected. They don't allow themselves to be affected by anything that they do. And this is very unattractive. But what we want is the hero who rides out on the battlefield, right? Because we don't have this in our modern leaders. We have to rely on it in fiction. So people are they're watching fictional movies of the hero riding in the front of the battlefield, holding the flag, right? The real king. We want a leader who's willing to put themselves in danger, who believes so much for their cause that they're willing to sacrifice I mean, everybody can say, yes, we should do this, yes, we should do that. I got an email from a devotee the other day going on and on and on and on and on about what we should do. And so I wrote back and I said, what do you think we should do? You're identifying a problem. What do you think we should do? What are you willing to do? I remember being in a temple once where the devotees had a meeting and they were complaining, do, you do this, do that, do that. And I said, okay, how many people are willing to stand up and do something? I said, if there were like 25 devotees there. I said, if at least three people will come forward, then I'll also help. I said, but I'm not going to do it alone. No, 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 no. I said, sorry. You, know, you have you have to be willing to actually get up there and fight for what you believe in. And especially a leader has to be willing to. A, a real leader is it the is leading from the front a real, in the sense that they're putting themselves in, in harm's way that they're taking responsibility for themselves there's a, a very famous uh, book in the management leadership world called Good to Great where they were, looking at, they were looking at companies just in terms of money but how would they become profitable and stay profitable and they identified different qualities of great leaders and one of the qualities that really struck me and the leader was that when everything went wrong it said they looked in the mirror and when everything went right they looked out the window. In other words, when things went badly they blamed themselves and they said how can I do better when things went well they gave credit to everyone in their organization. Another quality of these great leaders was that they put the mission ahead of themselves. They were fully dedicated to the mission but they weren't putting their own ego. So the great leader, although they're riding at the front of the battlefield, it's not in the sense of their own ego. And one example was that the poor leaders, as soon as they died or as soon as they retired, then the organization suffered. But the great leaders, they were concerned for the organization. So they had all sorts of succession plans in place. And we see this of course with you Prabhupada. You know, especially starting with Prabhupada Centennial. We started making propaganda, Prabhupada at the center, Prabhupada at the center, which I think overall is a very good thing. But we should remember that when Srila Prabhupada was here, he did not put himself at the center. Who was at the center? Always. Krishna. And even in a technical managerial sense, in nineteen seventy, Srila Prabhupada started the What did Prabhupada established in nineteen seventy? The GBC. Do you think that practically any members of the GBC were qualified in 1970 to be the GBC? What do you think? Prabhupada started this movement in 1966, and that means they've been devotees utmost for four years. Some of them have been devotees only for two years. How old do you think most of these people were? Early 20s. Do you think that practically any of them had leadership or management training? Do they have leadership management experience? Not much. So they didn't have much spiritual training. Could you imagine now if we took some devotee, he'd been a devotee two years, 21 years old, no leadership management training, and made them a GBC. <laughs> so that's what Chilaparabha did. Now why did he do that? And by the way, those, those GBC made some mistakes. It wasn't without consequence. And some of the mistakes they made, frankly, we're still suffering for that in our Krishna. Some of those became perpetuated. So why did Shiva Prabhupada do that? Why didn't he just lead everything himself? Because he wanted to have the mission succeed. He was much more interested in the mission succeeding. He was much more interested in the organization succeeding. The history of organizations with some strong charismatic leader is as soon as that person passes away or whatever, the organization collapses very, very soon. So this is the kind of heroism that we want to see in a leader, and particularly a political leader. Our, I, I must say that our modern political leaders really don't come up to the mark in this regard. And then, okay, as far as the vices, they become beautiful when they enrich culture activities and protect cows. Now, Prabhupada specifically mentioning cows, but we could say all the natural resources. It, just like the satyrs are supposed to protect the people at the at risk of their own life. So the Vaishyas are supposed to be protecting all the natural resources. The land, the water, the air, the animals, especially the cows, should be flourishing under the Vaishyas. The Vaishyas should find a way to make money without harming these. And we have some idea, modern business, where they'll say, you know, this is a business done without exploiting anybody. Yes, I have businesses like that. This is a business that pays uh, fair wages, uh, that's not polluting the environment. So businesses uh, advertise like that. So if, if somebody makes a lot of money, and the way they're making a lot of money is by torturing the animals, by polluting the earth, by polluting the water, by polluting the air, then they may be very wealthy... And they may be very powerful in the society, and they may be providing us with many goods that we appreciate, but actually they're very ugly. And also enriching cultural activities, because the Vaishas are the only wealth-generating persons within society. Satriyas are collecting and redistributing wealth on a large scale. The Brahmins collect and redistribute wealth on a small scale. The Shudras are using the wealth and transforming it in various ways. But only the Vaishas are actually generating wealth. The Vaishas are taking the natural resources given by the Lord and transforming them into wealth for the society. And what they're supposed to do with this wealth is not only protect the sources of their wealth, all the Varnas are supposed to protect the sources of their wealth. We're going to talk in depth about the Brahmanas, so I don't want to talk about them so much right now. But the kshatriya is their source of wealth is the people who pay taxation. So they protect the people at the cost of their own life. The vices, their source of their wealth is the land, the water, the animals, so they're supposed to protect that. The source of the shujas wealth is all of the uh, arts and the crafts and the skills, and they're supposed to protect that. They're supposed to make sure they get passed down from generation to generation. And everyone is also supposed to use their particular source of wealth for enrichment of the society and ultimately the pleasure of God as mentioned. So the vices are supposed to enrich culture within society. The vices and through their wealth, the who collect taxes, have always been the patron of the arts. Artists, musicians, theater, cannot really exist without patronage from business persons and the government. Otherwise it will collapse. Right now in America we have a leader who says, I want to cut all funding for the arts and the humanities. So this is very demoniac. so this is what the the beauty of the business persons is when they enrich culture within society and then the shudras here Prabhupada says they're beautiful when they're faithful in the discharge of their duties and I was thinking about this in relationship to a group of of people uh, I don't really want to name them right now but a group of people who very much exemplify this beauty of the shudras So one of the particular places that I preach, so the devotees and the people in general are very artistic. They're very expert in painting. They're very expert in music. They're very expert in theater. They're very expert in dance. They're very expert in creating things, furniture and homes. The shudras, their area is in beauty and functionality in the society. If you didn't have any shudras, you'd have no gardens. You'd have no architecture. You'd have no art. You'd have no, and you wouldn't have rubbish cleanup, there would be no beauty and nothing would work. I was in a temple once where there was no shudras and nothing worked. Everything was always broken. But I was talking with one devotee about this place and I realized that the devotees in this place, although they create beautiful things, they have no desire to enjoy them themselves. The Vaishas and the are historically famous for wanting to enjoy beautiful atmospheres, isn't it? Wanting to live in opulence. They are the patron of the arts without them the arts couldn't succeed they want to be in homes I know one devotee who's a very successful Vaisha, and uh, he offered us a donation for our Gurukula regular basis he used to donate to our Gurukula so we had had for various reasons two identical huge prints made of a BBT poster but we only needed one so I offered to him you know, we could give you this print as a gift for your donation he said no no I only have original art in my house so the vices and Kshatriyas as patrons of the arts. They're the ones we were at a, a, a place right Tarni and I were at a place like that where the whole home was full of original artwork. Right? Remember that. So their their home is full of you know original oil paintings and sculptures and uh, they, they'll hire live musicians, not just have recordings and things like that. Uh, but the shudras they don't do that. The Shudras don't have homes full of original art, and they're not enjoying those things. And I was meditating on, in one sense, the Shudra epitomizes the Bhakta, providing sensory happiness for the Lord, but not so interested in enjoying it themselves. That the typical Shudra is interested in a simple living. I was saying that these people, they're very austere by nature, they're very happy to live in great austerity. But they're providing art and beauty for the whole society of devotees. Although they themselves are very austere. And I thought, this is actually... You know, we tend to think, oh, the shudras, the shudras. But the das, we're all called das and dasi, which is traditionally a uh, surname of a shudra. And this is the beauty of a shudra. And most people in our modern society, frankly, are not even shudras. Most of the people in the in 2017 are not like that a shudra is is very skilled at least the higher levels of shudras they're very skilled they have their arts they have their crafts they've been preserving these these for generations they protect them and they provide all the beauty and functionality in society they're very faithful to their duties they simply want to please the higher classes of society they don't want to enjoy the fruits of their labor themselves what they want to enjoy is the pleasure of the higher classes. So this is our mood with Krishna, that we provide Krishna with everything beautiful, uh, just like the altar is decorated with fresh flowers. I remember when my father first visited the temple, he said, flowers, fresh flowers. Now you see in India, there'll be a festival. I assume this was some appearance day, all these flowers. So in India you see much more than this. Those who have been to India for a festival, they have, uh, you know, wooden, what would you call it, kind of like scaffolding or fencing like that, but it's completely covered with flowers, and they produce whole rooms full of flowers, which in America would only be done, you know, or Australia probably, for the wealthiest person's wedding. Imagine to, to do this all the time. So for Krishna we do this. For our own selves we're very simple. I mean, how many devotees cover their house with flowers for themselves? <laughs> but for Krishna we do this. And we're happy seeing these beautiful flowers on Krishna. We're happy seeing beautiful jewelry on Krishna. We're happy seeing beautiful clothes on Krishna. Again, how many of us wear clothes like we give to the deity? Covered with jari. So this is the mood of a servant. And this is the beauty of a Shudra. And they say, oh, Shudra, they're not as educated and so forth, but their beauty is when they have this mood of service. So everyone becomes beautiful in their own way. But we shouldn't think that this forgiveness is only for the Brahmanas. Although the Brahmanas are the epitome of forgiveness, therefore they're called Kshaminam. They're the forgiveness people. Who are they? Oh, they're the forgivers. That's what this word would mean. Those are the forgivers. Here are the forgivers, here are the heroes, here are the wealth generators, here are the artists. They're the forgivers. Still everyone is meant to be forgiven. Of course there's some distinction in our ISKCON movement. One of the main complaints about our ISKCON movement by its members is that we don't have a very good justice system. Any of you who have stayed around this society for any length of time has figured out that we're really bad about due process. You all know what due process is? When someone's accused of something, there's a particular process by which the accused can get, hopefully, justice. There's ways for witnesses and for consideration, and you hear both sides, and it's public and we, there's so many attempts been made in ISCON to have a good justice system unfortunately our uh, person who was working on justice uh, in, a, in a big way just recently passed away but this is, this is a big complaint isn't it? any of you who stuck around for at least 10 years or when we have people who do sometimes really not very nice things in our movement and we tend some of them get punished excessively and some of them get hardly punished at all have you noticed this? And one of my conclusions is that it's because most of our leaders are brahmanas. who are the forgiver people. But it's like, okay, you're forgiven. 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 Because okay, that's, the, the, that's where the brahmanas are. They're, they're just like, okay, mercy, mercy. Mercy, 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 mercy. <laughs> Let me go back to my Bhagavatam reading. <laughs> forgiving, forgiving. What is this verse in the Bhagavatam? <laughs> and it's the Ksatryas who are, they're the ones who are going to say, okay, look, you can be excused, but you, you have to be punished for the, for the good of society. And I see in our ISKCON movement that the one varna we haven't really um, energized are the ex-satris. When I first joined, we had facility just for brahmanas and shudras. You know, if you were if you wanted to study or you wanted to preach or you wanted to just you know, clean the floor and paint pictures, okay. But we didn't like Vaishas and Kshatriyas in the early days of the movement. Like the, you're in Maya. Unless you want to just take milk cows, you could be that kind of a Vaisha. We accepted the, the cow milking Vaisha. Right? That, was, that was cool. But if you wanted to be a Vaisha that made millions and millions of dollars and had like a really successful business, then we just said, oh, you're in Maya. Until the late 80s and the early 90s, when we no longer were maintaining our temples strictly by book distribution for many uh, historical reasons, which we don't have time to get into today, then all of a sudden we said, Vaishas, we love you. <laughs> Go make lots of money for Krishna. <laughs> that was quite interesting. But we still haven't uh, really understood the kshatriyas And so people in our movement with satsras tendencies, they tend to either pretend to be brahmanas, which they don't do very well, or pretend to be vaishyas which they don't do very well or they tend to create their own kingdom outside of the legal entity of ISKCON and run that. You know, we really haven't... We're kind of afraid of letting the Ksatryas have much power in our movement. But if we really want a society, if we really want the international society for Krishna consciousness, not just Icon but ISKCON, then we're going to have to energize also our Ksatryas. And I think there's some mood for that. Uh, I'm convinced that at least some of the people who spend the bulk of their time criticizing the movement are simply frustrated exatris especially if they're really on the justice morals, ethics have you noticed that that's kind of missing? Anybody? that's kind of our missing piece that's the exatris piece so in one sense we could say this forgiveness is really for the brahmanas that if exatris are too forgiving or the is too forgiving or the shudras too forgiving that their work won't progress very well They won't be able to do their their job. They won't be able to do their service. So we could say this is specifically the jurisdiction of the Brahmanas. They're supposed to be super forgivers. But in another sense, everybody who's a Vaishnava, if they want to be peaceful, should be forgiven. So it could be that externally, just like Narada Muni told the snake, he had a snake disciple. He was probably preaching in Australia. (laughs) the <laughs> so snake disciple and he told the snake don't bite anybody anymore then he came back a while later he says my dear disciple how's it going and the snake said well everybody found out I don't bite so the children are all throwing rocks at me and he said okay don't bite but raise your hood so if one is acting as a Ksatriya, Vaishya or Shudra one may have to raise one's hood but one should still not bite one's internal mentality should be forgiven One may have to externally, as a ksatriya, if you never punish anybody, you're a terrible kshatriya. If you're not a little ruthless, also as a vaisha, you're going to be a terrible vaisha. It's not not going to work. You're not going to be able to get your job done. But your internal heart should be forgiven. And certainly for the brahmanis. If a person wants peace, peace and forgiveness are intertwined. They're practically the same word. And Krishna says you cannot be happy if you don't have peace. So happiness without peace is not possible. So, what is this forgiveness? Now, we teach a whole seminar on forgiveness, which we definitely don't have time because, according to this sign here, I have to end in 12 minutes. So, this is going to be a very uh, short sutra like. Description of forgiveness. Well, oh, even though the sign says eight yeah. forty-five. Yeah. even though the sign says eight forty-five. What? Yeah. Okay, so I can go till nine. Is that okay with everybody? Okay, if 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 you anyone here who wants to obey the sign and leave at eight forty-five, that's fine. I, I won't feel offended or anything if you. Quietly, go out at 845. Okay, that gives me a little bit more. So forgiveness, I find, is one of the most misunderstood qualities and activities. Although it is the key to peace and one of the main keys, as is said here, to the pleasure of the Lord. Remember what forgiveness gives us? Anybody remember the three things I said at the beginning of the class, what we get when we're forgiving? i get an F for teaching Pleasing today. Krishna. Pleasing Krishna. What else? Now well, we talked about how each of these people become beautiful. We become beautiful. We become attractive. And the other thing is we become light like the sun. We have this sari-yata-prabha prabha means effulgent sari means the sun we become our, our consciousness becomes clear so would that be nice? would we like that? Everybody would like, everybody would like to be attractive? anybody here want to be ugly? no would we all like clarity of, of consciousness? And would we all like Krishna to smile at us? and say yes very good? Yes? So are we willing to explore this topic? Because it's a heavy topic. Most of us have somebody in our life that we go, I am never going to forgive that person. Maybe if they grovel for a long time, I might think about it. Unless you have a very blessed life. Most of us have somebody in our life that we're really like, ah, I don't know if I want to forgive that person. Sometimes it's ourself. Sometimes the person we're struggling to forgive is ourself. We're working on this heavy, you know, I have to punish myself um, kind of thing. Uh, so what is forgiveness? If we think about one of the most forgiving people in the Shastra, and uh, that would be Prahlad Maharaj. And Prahlad Maharaj's forgiveness is really, it's its almost inconceivable. I mean, you're a little kid, five years old, child. And what was his fault? He was in ecstasy of love of God and he just wanted to share it. He's saying, you know, you should love God the way I do. It's, it's wonderful. It's just natural, right? If you have something... You have some ice cream and your father comes and you love your father, here, have some ice cream. So Prahlad Marsh loved his father, it was his father. I'm ecstatic in love of God. Here, have some. And his father's response is to try to kill him. Rani Kashipu is the original child abuser. You know, he tried to kill his child in so many ways. And there was no, you know, child protection office. He hadn't established it yet when Hiranyakashipu was running things. And he was the government. There was no social services. You know, Prahlad couldn't call social services. Hello, Hiranyakashipu's government here. How could I help you? You know, what was he going to do? Only Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva were not offering obeisances to Hiranyakashipu. Even Narada was externally worshipping him, all the demigods. How many ways did he try to kill Prahlad? Does anybody remember? Threw him off a cliff. Poisoning. Fire. Snakes. Hmm? Elephants stepping on. Boiling him in oil. Having demons pierce him. Wind, putting him out in a storm. I mean, look, if somebody did just one of those things to us, how would we feel? I mean, fortunately, you know, nobody's tried to kill me. Hopefully, with none of us, no one's ever tried to kill us. But if somebody tried to kill us, and if that person who tried to kill us was our own father, you know, if it was our own protector, and you're just five... The person who's supposed to take care of you tries to kill you. And when Nasinghadev came, Prahladmara said, please don't let my father suffer. That's very interesting. If we look at what Prahladmara said, we can understand what is forgiveness. He said, my father was very offensive and very sinful. He said, my father was very offensive to you, dear Lord, and to me. So forgiveness does not mean stupidity. Forgiveness is not... Oh no, they didn't hurt me at all. I just have a broken arm. You know, that's not forgiveness. Often we think forgiveness means saying nothing bad happened when actually something bad happened. That wasn't what Prahlad Maharaj said. But he said, May he be liberated. May he not have to suffer for what he did wrong. But not that he goes, I'm doing it wrong. May he be fixed but without suffering. He did something wrong, may be fixed without suffering. And that's an encapsulated form of forgiveness. But in, in meditating about how to put this into practice in our own lives, I've looked at four steps. So first step is due process. Are you sure the other person was wrong? So I know many times people have been very upset with me and they completely misunderstood what I did. Has this happened to everybody? Yes. I think it particularly happens in family or if you work with people on a regular basis in the workplace. I mean, there have been people who have been furiously angry with me and telling people terrible things about me and there was a complete misunderstanding, which I don't have time to tell those stories now. But I'm sure you all have your own stories you can think about. You know, and once the truth came out, they were like, oh. (laughs) So it can work the other way. Sometimes I'm completely convinced that somebody did something bad to me, and they didn't. They actually did something else. I mean, I'm sure we've all heard of, of crime scenes where the police are completely convinced this person did it. It actually wasn't. Now, when I was a kid I used to like detective stories the butler did it it wasn't the butler, it was somebody else and all the evidence points to this person but actually it was somebody else the story was completely different and sometimes maybe I'm at fault too it's not always that the other person is 100% guilty and I'm 0% guilty frankly that, that just doesn't happen very much Maybe you're just walking down the street minding your own business and somebody comes up with a knife and steals your money and runs away. But in in most of our human interactions, there's some fault on each side. So, first thing is due process treat others the way we want to be treated. Instead of jumping to a conclusion and getting angry, I was just trying to mediate a situation like this with some devotees where someone wrote something on a forum and immediately somebody became very angry. And when I went to the person who wrote it, what they intended was very different than what was understood. And then the whole situation became just the trading of insults and escalated into a very unfortunate conclusion, just from a misunderstanding. So due process. And if it's a serious thing, then you have the due process done by a disinterested third party. So if it's a minor thing, you can go to the person, you know, you take your anger, and we get very angry, especially if we feel we're being insulted. Yes? Do you know why we get very angry when we feel we're being insulted? Does everybody know? What is an insult threaten? Or if we're slighted or, you know. It threatens our status. And biologically, as social beings, we get resources according to our status. Higher status people get more resources. So we usually work hard to establish our status, and if somebody insults us in some way, somebody puts us down in some way, we feel that our status is threatened and our resources are threatened. It's really a biological response. Something like animals, you know, if their territory is threatened, they'll fight. So we have this automatic biological chemical response, somebody's hurt me, somebody's offended me. And if we can just say, wait a minute, I'm not this body, I'm not this mind, this is just chemicals in the body, this is just chemicals in the mind. Due process. Let me find out what the real story is. Either myself going to the person and saying, look, this is what I think you said, this is what I think you meant, can you please tell me your side of the story? And in very serious matters, take it to a higher authority, maybe the police, maybe to a judge. So due process. Okay, let's say you've done due process and the other person is wholly or mostly wrong. Why do we want the opposite of forgiveness, which is to hurt those who hurt us? So, if I were doing my whole seminar, I'd ask everybody, but that would take about 20 minutes. But you can think about it for a minute. Why do I want those who hurt me to suffer? And when I teach a seminar, we come up with various reasons. One is I'm looking for empathy. I figure you hurt me because you don't understand that you hurt me. This is especially true if we already have a relationship with someone. We're thinking, you you couldn't have done that knowingly because I know you don't want to hurt me. So if I explain how you hurt me, and one of the ways we want to explain how you hurt me is by hurting you. So if somehow I can make you feel the pain that you made me feel, then hopefully you'll be empathetic and we'll have good understanding. By the way, does that work? Okay. But that is part of our motive. We're looking for some empathy and connection. Another reason is for balance and justice. We want balance and harmony. Somebody hurt somebody, somebody should get hurt back. So the things become equal and balanced. Uh, that, does that work? What tends to happen is A hurts B and then B hurts A and then A hurts B and then B hurts A and it goes on for generations. And you don't remember why your great great grandfather was fighting anymore. Right? Just the Yes, yeah, so many examples we did. In America we have the Hatfields and the McCoys in the Appalachian Mountains. They've been fighting for generations. They shoot each other. They don't know why they shoot each other. What was the original quarrel about? Oh, I don't know. You know, or what was that in Rwanda? The Tutsis and the... Hutus. What were they fighting about? They were chopping up each other with machetes. What what was the the quarrel about? Who knows? Something back in other lifetimes and other generations. But anyway, we have a desire for balance. Also, another reason we want to hurt those who hurt us is we have an intuitive sense that bad people suffer and good people enjoy. So if the person who hurt me is enjoying, and I'm suffering, that makes me wrong and them right. Do you all follow that? If they're the person happy and I'm the person suffering, then I must be wrong and they must be right. But if I'm convinced that I'm right and they're wrong, then they have to suffer. That proves that I'm right. They have to suffer at least as much as I do, preferably more. So this is the sense of, this is called envy, actually wanting those who hurt me to suffer more than me. It's envy. I don't want anyone to be happier than I am. Generally in this world, it's like that. You know, you can have a nice car as long as it's not quite as good as mine. You can have a good kid as long as he or she is not quite as smart as mine. You can be Krishna conscious as long as you're not quite as advanced as I am. You know, this this kind of mentality that we don't like anybody to be higher than, than we are, which is envy. I, another reason that we may want people to suffer who hurt us, is we want them to learn their lesson for their good. We're thinking this is not good for them, it's damaging them as a person, uh, but they should learn through suffering. Of course, do we like to learn through suffering? Anybody here like to learn through suffering? I don't meet some people who do. We like to learn things through happiness, right? Yes? So one of the reasons we learn through suffering is, according to uh, Suniti, telling Juva Maharaj, is that we want others to learn through suffering. So if, if we would like to learn joyfully, then wish joyful learning on others. Whether they get it or not, that's not our, in our power, but at least to wish it on them. So we may want them to learn a lesson. We may want them not to help hurt others, so we may want it for themselves. We may also want them to learn a lesson so they don't hurt us again. I'm thinking, you know, you hurt me once, if you suffer, then you won't hurt me again. We hurt, we want our enemies to suffer as a way of protection. You know, I'm really tough, and I'm special, and if you hurt me, man, you're going to suffer. People who really have this mentality take birth as rose bushes <laughs> and poison ivy. Touch me and suffer. So this mentality... I had a kid in the Gurukul who was a bully and I remember saying to him why are you treating other kids like that he said well I figure if I hurt them first they'll know I'm really tough and they won't hurt me but at least we want to hurt them second if if we're not a bully you hurt me you're going to suffer so much you're never going to hurt me so this is a desire for safety so other than the envy and pride uh, those are all actually good desires to want empathy and connection, to want balance and harmony, to want the good of the other person, and to want safety. By the way, does hurting other people give us safety? Does that work? People, people say this all the time, well, if I'm just humble and forgiving, then everybody will abuse me. And I'm saying, you don't get abused anyway? Does, is that... If you're nasty and mean, does that mean nobody ever hurts you? I mean, is that effective? Not in my experience, in fact, in my experience, if I'm mean and nasty, people are more hurtful than me. That's, that's I've tried it, by the way. I've done an experiment in <laughs> being mean and nasty and being nice and seeing how people treat me. So if we really want those things, where are we going to get those things? Where are we going to get empathy? Where are we going to get balance? Where are we going to get compassion? And where are we going to get safety? Where are we going to find them? If we're not going to find them in hurting our enemies, where are we going to find them? This is an easy question, it's not a trick question. Right there! There he is. That's a very long garland. Now, I know Krishna wears a vajayanti garland, but that just goes to his knees. But that one, I don't know, how's he going to dance with that garland? I guess if the garland is alive, then it dances independently? Like right now, it's kind of up in the air. So I guess if the garland dances independently, it kind of stays out of the way while he's dancing. So from him, that's where we're going to get all those things. And this is the most important step. You don't do this step. It doesn't work. Get your needs met from Krishna. First is always due process, because maybe there's nothing to deal with anyway. Maybe I'm the one who needs to apologize Or maybe there was really no problem at all. So step one is always due process. Find out what's going on. But if somebody really hurt me, I've got to get my needs met from Krishna. I will not be able to take the next step in forgiveness if I don't get my needs met from Krishna. It just doesn't work. Krishna, you understand me. You understand what I've been through. You understand how I was hurt innocently. Krishna, you are the ultimate balance. You are the ultimate justice and harmony. You are giving me safety. And you are the ultimate compassion for this person and me. And you are the only one who can accomplish this. I am not going to accomplish these things by hurting people who hurt me. Now this is absolutely crucial. Does it, might it mean that you, you know sit down for a minute and don't type the email. Right? Or don't say anything. Or just just to take a moment. Right? Out in the world they tell people take a timeout. But what are you supposed to do in your timeout? Fume? You know, you can be angry and hateful and vengeful to somebody for twenty years. Yes? For lifetimes, like Ambo with Bhishma, she was angry at him for lifetimes. And by the way, a consequence of not forgiving is you get tied karmically to the person. And you may come back next life and marry them or be their kid or their parent or their brother or something so you can get an opportunity for your vengeance. Very attractive, isn't that what you think? (laughs) Krishna says, okay, you wanted to hurt them back. Here's your opportunity. Now they're your husband. Oh, good. Sounds like you'd have a really happy marriage (laughs) while you're getting your revenge. So only Krishna, not these other things. Then, once our needs are satisfied with Krishna, it's not just taking a time out. It's taking the time to say, Krishna, only you can give me what I need. Then, I don't need to get it from the other person because I already have it. I already have safety. I already have balance. I already have understanding. I already have, I already have it. I'm already filled with it. Then, third step, may you learn through joy. Yes, you need to learn something, objectively speaking, because I've done due process. May you learn through joy. May you learn whatever you need to learn joyfully. Fourth step. Krishna, let this person hurt me. Otherwise, what's the meaning to the law of karma? If if anybody can just hurt anybody who didn't have some lesson to learn, then there's nobody in charge. If there's someone in charge, he only lets person A hurt person B if person B was destined to be hurt in that way. That person is just the instrument. You know, you order something on the internet and it gets delivered by the postperson or UPS or something. So the carrier who delivers it, they're delivering your order. You know, if you order a snarling, barking dog who bites you, you that's what we ordered. We don't tend to believe that we ordered such things, but anyway. The first thing is, what's my lesson? What does Krishna want me to learn? Why did Krishna allow? Because sometimes people want to hurt us and they can't. Have you experienced this? I have. There are people who hate me and want to harm me and they just can't do anything. Hasn't this happened? And then sometimes people want to help me and they can't do anything, also. Have you also had this experience? And sometimes people have no desire to hurt me at all. They love me and they hurt me anyway. Yes? So there's got to be something else going on here besides just somebody else's malicious intention. So what's my lesson? And again, the seminar going to this in depth. So right now I'm going to say something that probably none of you will believe. But please trust me, it, 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 it's true. I can't prove it to you right now. One lesson may be that I've done something similar to somebody else and that I'm probably doing something similar to somebody else right now, but it probably looks very different to me. So that one possible lesson may be a mirror. And in my own experience, I found that about 80% of the time, that's very anecdotal, non-scientific. I have not done a scientific sociological experiment. But in my very anecdotal experience about 80% of the time when people hurt me it's because I'm giving out that kind of pain to somebody it's probably a different person and it's probably in a different context and I don't think of it the same way I don't think of what I'm doing to person A in the same way as what person B is doing to me just a very simple example you know maybe somebody doesn't they're not on time and I really want to be on time for something and I'm thinking why are they so inconsiderate So maybe I'm on time, but maybe I leave a mess for someone else to clean up. Do you follow what I'm saying? And I tend to see my faults as insignificant. I tend to think what I'm doing, I'm such a wonderful person, and although I make some mistakes, they're very minor, and they're not very important, and they should be overlooked. So I I tend to understand my faults in that way. I tend to be very charitable with myself. (laughs) I had good intentions. I was just in a hurry. I just didn't have time. So many excuses for myself. And when someone else does something like that to me, then I don't give them, I don't cut them any slack at all. So I found if you say to Krishna, my dear Krishna, especially for something repeated, if there's a way in which we keep getting offended or harmed by others over and over again, there's a good chance that we're putting it out. So I found if I ask Krishna, my dear Lord, I don't think I treat anybody like this. I really don't. I don't see it. But If I am, would you please show me? And if if I am, I I promise you that I will stop. And then I find Krishna is very good about showing us. Other lessons, again, in my very anecdotal, unscientific experience, the other 20% of the time, are very different. They may be, hey, I shouldn't be in this situation. I'm harming my spiritual life by being in this situation where these people are treating me like this. Or this is not the right situation for my nature at all. Or, wow, I've got to be a lot more humble I've got to be a lot more charitable. I've got to be a lot more forgiving. I've got to be a lot more present to people. It could be just something like that. Maybe I'm not putting out the same thing I'm getting back. But maybe I've got to work on something else. And this person's behavior towards me is Krishna's way of saying, hey, you've got something you have to fix. Something you have to address in your life. So first thing is what's... Last thing is what's the lesson? And my suggestion always with what's the lesson is ask Krishna. Ask Krishna. Your teacher, don't guess. Guessing with the mind, the mind is not a reliable source of telling us what we need to fix in our life. It will pretty much always tell you something wrong. It will pretty much always direct you to something that's not really a problem or something unrelated, it's a distractor. So in this the mind is not a friend. So if we want to know what's my lesson, don't ask your mind. Ask Krishna, the teacher. You're the one allowing this to happen. What am I supposed to learn from this? So I've seen forgiveness is, first of all, due process. Find out what's really going on. Take the time. Assume that you may be at least partially in the wrong. Assume that we may have completely misunderstood or partially misunderstood the situation. Treat others with the due process we'd like to have. Get my, Number two, get my needs met by Krishna. Krishna. You're the one who understands me. I don't need this other jiva to understand me because you understand me. I don't need to try to force this jiva to understand me because you understand me. I I can't guarantee my own safety. You can give me safety. I can't create balance and harmony in the universe. You can create balance and harmony. I can't help this jiva to learn what they need to learn, but you can. Please, you be there for me. You do that for me. Then third, may you learn through joy to the person who heard us. And fourth, okay, Krishna, what was here, What was my lesson? Let that person learn through joy. What am I supposed to learn? When I first started to identify this, uh, the first time that I used this, I used it in a very mechanical way. I didn't really believe it entirely. And, and uh, I had an opportunity after studying this to apply it very quickly. <laughs> If we want to become more forgiving, Krishna will give us opportunities to be more forgiving, uh, if you understand what that means, if you think about that for a moment. So I had somebody act in such a way where I had to practice this, and I'll admit fully and freely and totally that I didn't feel any of it. But I just said internally, all right, I may be misunderstanding the situation. Krishna, you're the one who meets my needs. May you learn through joy. And as soon as I said in my mind, may you learn through joy, I was over flooded with, what is the other meaning of forgiveness? Peace. I felt as if I had like just walked into an environment of peace. I was just surrounded with peace. Like like you dive into water and it's it's just all around you. And that was just doing it mechanically. And I didn't even get a chance to say, what's my lesson? That was afterwards, after the person was yelling at me. And I was like, wow. If you even forgive mechanically, you get peace. That's pretty easy. Then I concluded that maybe it wasn't just for Pallad Maharaj. Up until that time, I thought, eh, yeah, I'll become forgiving when I become like Pallad never considered that if I ever wanted to become like Pulada Maharaj, maybe I ought to be forgiven. So, this quality of forgiveness brings us, what does it bring us? Peace. What else? Beauty. eh? Clarity. eh? Krishna's pleasure. If we want to know how to please Krishna, this is how we do it. And if we're not forgiving, there's all kinds of negative consequences. We bind ourselves to people with karma. We have to take birth again and again so we can beat each other up. You know, we get full of anger and hatred, which can make us physically ill. Yes, mentally ill. Then instead of becoming beautiful, we actually become ugly. People don't like to be around us. Because all we talk about is how angry we are at all these other people. Yes, do you know people like that? Every time you got that, let me tell you this story. Let me tell you that story. And Krishna's like, you know, I don't think you quite fit in Goloka Vrindavan. I don't think it's a good fit for you. Now, the residents of Goloka Vrindavan are doing that mood So thank you very much. So I, I don't think we have time for questions. Thank you.